yeah, I mean, it's it's nice to get really deep into a reading topic. I've been kind of like very slowly making my way through this allegory and ideology by Frederick Jameson. It's super fucking engaging, but it's so dense. And every 10 pages, he references something that I have to go look up on the computer. Like, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I read a six-page essay, uh, an apparently controversial six-page essay by Freud uh, called Creative Writers and um, the Unconscious or or something like that. And it was really good. But after I read it, I kind of sat around thinking about it for a minute. And then I remembered like, oh, yeah, I read this so I could understand a paragraph in this book. <laughs> I should probably <laughs> pick this book back up. And then uh, I got to another point in the book and it was like, see Appendix A. And I'm like, oh, fuck yeah, an appendix. And I read a 10-page <laughs> appendix about the Grimus Square and this like fourfold logic that he's trying to uh, encapsulate that he lifted from another thinker whose last name is Grimus. And I did the same thing. I got done with it and I'm like, trying to make sense of this fucking square and i'm like this was a footnote in another a whole <laughs> different point he was trying to make <laughs> like yeah like the thing i I've, I've liked the stuff that i read from jameson but there's so much that he references that i don't mm -hmm. know that makes it very difficult to get through his work for me <laughs> yeah well yeah. One, one thing that i've noticed is that like a lot of authors he has a very different uh, spoken style of explaining things equally authoritative and knowledgeable but a, a very very different style of communicating that is much clearer uh, maybe because when he's speaking or lecturing he's not intending that his audience will all be people who are already familiar with the oh, yeah, yeah. history and philosophy and marxism and all the aesthetics and all of that stuff so um if you listen to his uh, speeches and lectures and interviews on YouTube, it's really great for two reasons. One, because it's like a plain English explainer on the stuff that you've been struggling to read. And two, because he's a contemporary American writer. He Everything's in English and there's no translation right. issues. And uh, it sounds like some kindly old grandpa at the grocery store is explaining ontology to you. And it's really <laughs> nice. I, I really like it. And I feel bad that I have like American brain where I'm like, it, it needs to be an old American man. But <laughs> yeah. it, it does kind of help. It's weird because when it's an old British dude or something, I'm just like, okay, lich lord. <laughs> tell, like, tell me your crypt secrets. Like <laughs> Even with like you know one of the people who i've been like one of the biggest influences on me like domenico lacerdo like mm -hmm. because his stuff's all in italian it relies on translation and if say a company like verso owns the rights to publish his stuff and they don't like some of his stuff and they just decide not to publish it and so mm -hmm. you have to like rely on a fan translation because they won't publish his really good book on stalin <laughs> oh yeah wow. running up against the same problems i had trying to watch anime in high school but this time i'm trying <laughs> to access actually important information <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, in uh, non-important information thing, John, did you see that clip that I pulled of you saying in other nudes? <laughs> did I say in other nudes? Wow. Yeah, that was that's very a very funny. midwestern uh, uh, bit of phonology to add. Like, in, um, <laughs> what, what do they call it in British English? The intrusive R. Well, where words that don't end in R will sometimes have an R sound at the end. Okay. Uh, I can't fucking think of one right now, but you, you know what I mean. It happens in some in some English accents. I feel like Midwesterners have an intrusive like D, right? Like we both <laughs> we we want to make the T and the D sound converge and be undifferentiated, but we also want to throw little ns and ds into the middles of words. Uh -huh. 
everybody to your favorite phonology and <laughs> what were we talking about before? Phonology podcast. Uh, work stoppage. Right. We are entirely listener supported. So thank you so much for any money you might be throwing us on Patreon. Get in the Discord if you're not already in there. We want to get stickers out to our patrons. So if you are a patron and you haven't sent us your address on Patreon, that's why you don't have any stickers yet. We, we are trying to send them to you. Uh, and if you want to help the show, uh, you can leave us a five-star review wherever you think it would help. But if the, the maximum number of stars is higher than five, I would encourage you to go above and beyond. Uh, <laughs> yeah, if, we're gonna... if you can somehow figure out a way, even if the system only allows you to do five, if you're like one of those computer people who knows how to code and you can figure out how to break the system and give us like 12 stars, I mean, by all means. <laughs> yeah, do it. As, as many st- if you can reach the integer limit of number of stars you can leave us that would be outstanding uh but we're going to start by talking about some a Verizon union organizer who got fired after stores started to unionize which is like I don't fucking know how many times we've talked about this Starbucks just keeps doing it over and over again yeah. but like when will businesses learn you can't just fucking fire the people who are organizing. Well, they've got a playbook. There's a there's a play, there's an, a union yeah. busting playbook that's pretty common though. I think that some of these tactics are are a little bit a part of like what is the current zeitgeist in uh fucking union busting and like Starbucks being the leader in what is uh like common in union busting these days. Their uh Verizon is really really just like copying the the starbucks method and hoping for the best right yeah. so this is two different stores in washington that unionized with the communication workers of america and then in response verizon swoops in and raises the minimum wage for its workers to twenty dollars to try and like get out ahead of this union movement and then like immediately they start turning up repression to 11 and illegally fire a worker for organizing yeah, and in another way that this is similar to, you know, the the Starbucks thing, because, of course, every time, you know, Starbucks has fired one of their workers for unionizing, they always make up some sort of excuse. And so the person they fired here, Jesse Mason, who's a specialist at Seattle's Northgate and Aurora Village store, which is only two miles from one of the stores that unionized. So clearly they're taking a bit of a geographic approach to try and stem the, the union tide. Uh, the, so th- this worker, Jesse Mason had no disciplinary action on his record whatsoever and was fired for what he called a minor fraction that, quote, no one would even get written up for under normal circumstances. And that's basically exactly what we've heard from Mm -hmm. so many of the workers who have been illegally fired at Starbucks because, and I think this is just, you know, this is kind of the fallout of at-will employment in the U.S., which is that, yeah, technically it's illegal to fire somebody for organizing, but because of at will, where where if they don't have a union and they're not doing protected activity, you can fire somebody for functionally any reason. It's very easy for a company to just make up some bullshit and convince a judge or a, a jury or whatever, and it becomes much more difficult for the NLRB or a union to prove that it was direct retaliation. And and Mason told reporters, everyone knew that I was the main person in my store that was doing the union organizing. I think they're trying to send a message. First of all, to everyone in my store that they better not think about doing this again without me. And then across the country, they're trying to send the message that if you try to do this, we're just going to fire you. 
it's crazy yeah. how workers just intuitively <laughs> fucking understand what's happening. I don't know how many quotes we've been through where a worker gets fired and they're like, I'm 99% sure this was targeted at me and at the union. And the CWA didn't didn't miss a beat. They immediately file a ULP against Verizon, and they're calling on the company right now to reverse its decision. And in a statement, uh, CWA Secretary-Treasurer Sarah Steffen said, Jesse's firing just days after dozens of other workers at two nearby Verizon wireless retail stores successfully formed a union is a clear tactic meant to intimidate other workers. This is par for the course from Verizon, which is notorious for trying every anti-union tactic in the book in its retail stores. We are calling on Verizon CEO Hans Vestberg to reinstate Jesse. What a fucking stupid-ass name. Hans What a name. <laughs> yeah, that's I thought of that when I read that initially too. Uh, though, I mean, the I, like you were saying, the workers know exactly what's going on, and workers at the unionized store said that uh, this is clearly union busting, and it's only going to galvanize more people in in favor of the union. Just like we've seen with all of the Starbucks unions that have seen, especially like unanimous votes uh, in face in the face of extreme repression. But, you know, we're 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 not dumb as to what the fuck's going on here. Well, yeah, and, like, one of the things that I think has been really impressive to see from this and also, like, several of the other firings, like, that we've seen at Starbucks and even other places is, like, as you were mentioning, John, like, that level of consciousness. Like, because it would be very easy to to fall into a, 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 a position of being, like, maybe all this organized – look, I wanted there to be a union, but maybe this isn't worth it. If I'm just going to get fired, if this is going to throw my life into fucking mm-hmm. turmoil, that it would be a very understandable reaction. But we've seen time after time after time, certainly a lot of anger, justifiable anger directed at the company. But I don't think we've seen really a single case of like despair or like second thoughts about the union organizing. Yeah. It's all been, hey – I got fired because I was un- trying to unionize, which really just means we need more people unionizing, and I'm mm-hmm. I'm going to keep supporting the workers there. And it's just as you said, it's continued to just strengthen the resolve of the workers well, who are fighting. And I think this is maybe like a not fully formed thought, but the idea that a lot of people live in precarity and they already are basically at the whims of like getting fired at any moment leads people to be like, yeah, I mean, sure, I could get fired for union organizing, but honestly, they're going to fire me for whatever fuck reason they have. And so we have to fight back anyway. Uh, There is no losing here. Yeah. When we have people at Amazon getting fired by algorithm, people getting who are gig workers getting like kicked off their platforms for sometimes just not even being told why. Yeah, you know, you're right. It's the arbitrariness just becomes so obvious. So, I mean, obviously we hope this ULP goes forward, but I think the important thing here is is the commitment of these workers to continue the struggle in the face of this repression, which is going to make this sort of firing uh, really only like counterproductive in the long run. And so like as as is often the case, very impressed with the workers here. Yeah. Well, and on the thought of being counterproductive, we'll move to a, <laughs> yes. another follow-up that we have uh, when we're talking about the uh, Finnish healthcare workers that were on strike and were threatening to in like include a bunch more people on strike. Well, because of a the Minister of Family Affairs and Social Services uh, has brought put up a proposal to basically force uh, nurses to go to work assuming they were on strike by justifying it with like uh, you know harm to patients and and basically they're trying to instate a forced work 
clause uh, to bust the union. And uh, so because of that, you know, the union did actually uh, not, they actually ended the strike, but they then shifted gears to threaten mass resignation because uh, being forced to work is fucking whack. Yeah. Yeah, This is supposedly a quote unquote patient safety act. Uh, And I, I could see how this would be like a, a difficult move for workers to respond to, but I, it's hard for me to believe that the threat of mass resignations carries more weight than simply staying on strike. Yeah, I mean, but I think it's it, this came about from discussions on like h- how they could respond because like sure the like because you run into the issue of if you if you stay on strike and they pass this law, what do you do if the cops show up to? Not the picket lines, but to people's homes and tell them, hey, uh, if you don't go to work, you're going to be arrested. Like, Mm -hmm. whereas I think that because I mean, to get into like what you're talking about with the threats of resignation, like like the the unions here, Super and Tehi or T-E-H-Y, the the abbreviation for the, the, the healthcare unions there. Because that's been like they they had originally planned, as we talked about in our previous coverage of this, this is 25,000 workers that were on strike in six districts. And they were planning on, if they didn't get a response from the government, expanding that to 15,000 more workers, seven other districts. But because of this attempt to pass a law making it illegal for healthcare workers to strike functionally, uh, all this stuff about patient safety, is it's, it's, a, it's an anti-strike law. Uh, it, right. So like is, is functionally what it is. And so – Rather than expand it and put the the workers at the risk of arrest, this has been sort of like a, well, okay, we're going to circle the wagons and figure out how to deal with this. And so, like, we have a quote here from the chairperson of of one of the unions, uh, Milarika Rietkanen, saying, The Mandatory Work Act has been drafted in collaboration with the other party to the labor dispute, partly based on inaccurate information. As a result, the employer is no longer under pressure to find a settlement. The government can try in vain to scramble and run away from its responsibility. It is bogged down so deep in the labor market. <laughs> and and she clarified like what she meant by that and like why they're to why they're talking about instead of expanding the strike in response to this a, a mass resignation of healthcare workers uh saying that it it's Specifically, quote, to protect themselves specifically from a situation where a bailiff knocks on their door and forces them to work under the threat of a fine. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense as a condition that would make the the threat of mass resignations still a really, really useful uh, thing to have, even when your strikes are being criminalized. And I also hadn't thought about this. Maybe I just have American brain, but like Finland isn't that big of a country, so it would be... Mm -hmm. You know, it's already incredibly hard to replace an entire resigning medical staff all at once. I imagine in a relatively small country like Finland, it would be much increasingly harder, orders of magnitude more difficult. Yeah. And well, I mean, they mentioned when they launched the strike that that was one of the big things they were concerned about was Mm -hmm. that is something like I think 30,000 healthcare workers were set to retire anyway over the next few years just they were just going to, you know, hit, hit retirement age. And that because of the horrible conditions, low pay and the continuing austerity measures in the Finnish healthcare system, there was no policy on track to actually encourage people to go into healthcare work and replace them and, and provide the additional healthcare workers that were going to be necessary as Finland's population continues to age. And so if there's a mass resignation, and that doesn't mean all 25,000 workers who are striking would have to resign, 
really any amount of early resignation is just going to make the situation even more obviously worse. Mm-hmm. And, and so like, uh, it's one of those things where it's difficult to balance, you know, not only not being nearby, being in a completely different country, like not being able to understand like precisely the conditions on the ground, like all the discussions that are happening in there. But I think that like in a, in this sort of a situation where the strike is, is, like one of the primary issues is short staffing and insufficient people and the the government's refusal to incentivize that, that in that specific situation, this sort of, you know, mass resignation as a tactic makes sense, I think. And, 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 and I like, it's, it's one of those ways that I think it can be used as leverage rather than in other situations where if you're striking just over, wages or some other issue and it and mm-hmm. it was mass resignations you could see it as well this is perhaps not necessarily a surrender but just like a a lack of you know just the amount of force from the state pushing you out of options well, here and instead an, i think you can see it as an active measure well and in another example of how serious this is i mean the government itself made like uh through the ministry of economic affairs and employment had created an arbitration uh, like group basically to arbitrate between the the companies and the and the union itself, which is which which was described in the articles that we were covering as very unusual to the point where, like, they just have not really seen that the government decides, oh no, we're gonna do forced arbitration between the uh, the union and the company. And then, um, you know, I mean, that kind of circle back around on what the union is saying. Uh, Rikinen said that uh, a settlement is how this can be resolved. We'd like to find a solution for the nursing shortage together. It's uh, it's peculiar that the nurses are said to be irreplaceable to Finnish society, but at the same time, they're so worthless that no one wants to pay us. And and I think that that really clarifies uh, like what is actually going on on the ground. Is like it's it's a very serious fight, and the companies are not giving it an inch, and they're using the government to repress the strike. Yeah. So I mean, obviously, you know, solidarity with these workers. I hope that the 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 mass resignation threat is able to force concessions out of the government and, and have them come to their senses and be like, hey, we do actually need a healthcare system that has people who are alive and not driven to, you know, like the pit of poverty and like the, the, you know, the, the brink of mental breakdown, which I'm sure is faced by a lot of people because like burnout in healthcare is extremely real and is a crisis across the the world. And so hopefully, you know, the, these, these actions taken by the union will, will knock some sense into the Finnish government, but we'll definitely, you know, follow it and see where it goes. Mm -hmm. But bringing this back to the U S it, like in addition to long-term healthcare worker strike we've seen in Finland and also some of the other long care long-term strikes we've covered here, like at the the nurses at St. Vincent's, there have also been a lot of like really short-term actions trying to bring attention to these same issues faced in our healthcare system here in the US. Like uh on Wednesday, April 14th. There was a strike by dozens of 1199 SEIU workers at the Saugus Rehabilitation and Nursing Center in Massachusetts, where they were striking over poverty wages and short staffing, which has basically driven this, because this is an elder care facility, and the actions of the company that owns it have essentially brought it to the point where it can barely function. Like, 
the the level of insufficient staff is wild. Like one of the the strike leaders, Eddie Pierre, explained what's going on there, and he said it's twenty four patients for two certified nursing assistants for one shift, and in the night it's one. So like that means on the night shifts there you have one nurse covering for two do- like two dozen patients, which is I, that sounds it, impossible y- you literally cannot give people the care they need if you're covering for that many people like that's that's nuts like they the workers at the facility have pointed out that nearly half of their workforce has quit in the last like six to eight months because of the conditions there and a big part of that has been the stinginess of the the company that owns this this nursing home who are like, so this is in Massachusetts and Massachusetts has a law that requires that if you run a care facility like this, that at least 75% of your revenue has to be spent on, you know, the purpose of the facility, direct patient care (laughs) and not just pocketed as profits or sent off to administrators or, or put out as stock buybacks or whatever. And they're actually only spending 66% of their revenue on that. So they're significantly below the legal requirement. So in addition to your normal level of capitalist exploitation, like the, the company, uh, which is a a legal limited liability companies, which is always the name that you want associated with healthcare. (laughs) Like that, that, that company is basically just pocketing as much of it as they can and, and, and running this down to the bone and, this is the the sort of situation that it's resulted in. Yeah, and then additionally, uh, even though the union has a contract with the facility that requires a yearly renegotiation of wages due to inflation, uh, they only got a 5% raise in 2021 after not receiving one at all in 2020, and now the company is insisting that they freeze their wages for the the other remaining two years of that contract which is which is ridiculous when they're already hemorrhaging people because of the wages and the conditions Mm -hmm. that are going on there and and not spending the legally required amount on patient care at all yeah and like less people think oh well maybe they want a wage freeze because this facility is paying more than the average which i'm sure nobody actually thinks given the way portrayed it but like Specifically, the workers have pointed out that in Medford, which is like the town just next over from Saugus, like they, they, the workers at a nursing facility there make four dollars an hour more than the workers at Saugus. Like a a ten like a ten year veteran CNA at Saugus only makes nineteen dollars an hour to to care for elders. Like that, you can make that at like. The Dunkin' Donuts across the street, which is an important job, but a significantly less stressful one than, you know, taking potentially having to care for somebody like and 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 take care of their life. Yeah, they're running at a third less than their normal staffing rates, which is, you know, they usually have around 60 workers, which I'm sure is already less than what they need. And they're down to less than 40. Yeah. And right. one of the other aspects of this and this is this is something that we've seen across like elder care, home care, a lot of the aspects of like healthcare that have really seen wages massively suppressed over the last couple of decades, which is the racialized uh, nature of this because the majority of the workers at Saugus are of Haitian or African descent, which 
assuredly, you know, plays a role in why the company is so reluctant to raise wages. Like, obviously, there's the the capitalist incentive, but it's also, there's so many of these places that are just like, oh, all these people, you know, they're just pushing people around in wheelchairs, and they minimize, you know, the importance of the work as if it's something that's easy and anyone could do, despite, you know, if you actually talk to anybody who's ever done home care, elder care, any of this sort of stuff, this is incredibly taxing and extremely stressful work and $19 an hour is ridiculously low for that. And so no wonder a third yeah. of their staff has left. Well, and I mean, this this all falls in the category of long-term care. And mm-hmm. uh, people who listen to the to the death panel will know, based on the history, uh, that long-term care is one of the most uh, systemically like dis uh, like invested portions of the healthcare industry. So much so that whenever healthcare uh, legislation is actually pushed through the government, it's almost always uh, without long-term care provisions or at least restricted long-term care provisions and the back during the medicare for all push one of the main things that uh you know conservative democrats wanted to cut was long-term care from like the medicare for all provisions and Mm -hmm. that sort of like mentality is all baked into this along with that that racial aspect because of the kinds of people that are working in this industry uh and also our really lack of commitment to actually helping like and Caring for people who need long-term care, uh, elderly and not. Yeah, and, like, lest folks think that, like, this is just a struggle for the workers themselves, like, as with all healthcare, like, you know, one of the key aspects to, like, why these labor struggles are important is... You know, they're important on the general level because all worker struggles are important because we're fighting as a class. But when we're talking about healthcare and we're talking about, you know, the, the job of all these workers is to, you know, help keep people alive and keep their their quality of life in a, a place where that's actually worth living. Like we actually have quantitative data on the impact of this sort of thing because there was a recent study in, in the journal Health Affairs that showed that at nursing home facilities, long-term care facilities during the first year of COVID, I believe the study was from March, you know, when COVID first hit the States to I believe June of, of 2021, the death rate at these facilities that were union significantly lower than Mm -hmm. non-union facilities. So, like, it's not just that, you know, workers need a union to protect their own interests, which, of course, they do. But when we're in this sort of, specifically in the healthcare industry, as we've, the same way that we've talked about with nurses, why it's important to have safe staffing levels, not just for the workers themselves, but also for the health and safety of patients, it's exactly the same thing. In nursing homes, long care facility, like any any sort of healthcare like this, the 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 struggle of the workers is is important on its own, but it's compounded because when you get rid of those union protections and you cut the workers like wages even lower than what these unionized workers are getting, it has a direct deleterious effect on the people that they're caring for. To the point where it resulted in a significant number of completely like avoidable deaths during the pandemic Mm -hmm. yeah and and uh to keep going on the uh strikes that have been going on uh 8,000 workers across northern california struck for 24 hours uh on april the 18th 
uh, Monday after negotiating for nearly a year without any progress. And, I mean, we see that constantly of companies basically just digging in their heels and hoping to wait out the union. But, uh, I mean, some of these unions are are getting fed up and and at least going on these one-day strikes. The main demands that the workers uh, were are similar to the ones that we've seen all over with access uh, demanding access to uh, PPE, uh, demanding better wages, and addressing short staffing. I mean, it's literally every single time these things are in the list. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we, there was a quote from Amy Erb, one of the striking healthcare workers, and this is across uh, facilities owned by a company called Sutter Health. Uh, and then this person works at, uh, Amy Erb works at the California Pacific Medical Center, who told reporters, We have tried repeatedly to address the chronic and widespread problem of short staffing that causes delays in care and potentially puts patients at risk. But hospital administrators continue to ignore us. We have a moral and legal obligation to advocate for our patients. We advocate for them at the bedside, at the bargaining table, and if we have to, on the strike line. That's right. Yeah, and and so, like, this is... Obviously, we call for, you know, solidarity with every strike that workers are doing, but, like... It may become cliche to say every time we're talking about a healthcare strike, they're worried about short staffing. They're worried about short staffing. But it's a reflection of that systemic crisis in our essentially already collapsed healthcare system that is contributing to the horrific outcomes that we get. And if we don't fix the safe staffing issue the, the, at all these places across the country and really in all every capitalist healthcare system, it is putting all of our lives at risk. And Absolutely. so like we I don't even think you're being hyperbolic saying that we are basically in the in the throes of collapse within our healthcare system considering all of the new uh, evidence that the government was basically trying to uh, you know deny breakthrough uh, covid cases and and all of that. I mean like there's all, all sorts of ridiculous things that our system is just blatantly leaving people out there to die. Um, yeah, so you're probably go- if you haven't seen a healthcare strike near you, you probably will. And so definitely worth going out there and, and showing our solidarity. Yeah. And then uh, going to our weekly, one of our weekly topics that we've been covering recently, um, we're going to go and talk a little bit more about what's happening over at the ALU in Staten Island as well. Uh, well, I mean, I guess it, I was going to say as well as the other facility, but uh, that is still in Staten Island. Uh, so uh, last week, the ALU filed a complaint with New York Attorney with the with the New York Attorney General, asking them to investigate Amazon. Uh, the complaint hinges on the fact that Amazon has received nearly four hundred million dollars in direct subsidies from New York. Uh, and basically these are made to, uh, made with the, the, uh, stipulation that they have to comply with labor law. Well, and as we know, they didn't really do that. And, uh, so they are filing a complaint to basically get rid of any of the subsidies, uh, that Amazon would have been receiving or did receive while breaking the law. It's insane that labor law is so loosely and erratically enforced that you need to like attach a stipulation to money saying if you accept this money you actually have to follow the law. Yeah. They should have to like- follow the law <laughs> at all times. <laughs> yeah, that I know that's one of the things that's so funny because it's not like because you'll see sometimes those labor agreements on funding where it's like if we give you federal subsidies you have to use union labor which Sure. Great. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody should have a union. That's cool. I get that as a stipulation, but you're right. The ones where it's like, if we're going to give you this money, you have to obey the law. It's like, well, wait, 
aren't they supposed to obey the law anyway? If not, why'd you write it that way? Right. <laughs> Which is, I think, just like one of those tacit uh, un, like admissions that they know that U.S. labor law is generally not enforced and has no teeth. <laughs> right. right. Well, because they don't actually have provisions in the law that if you that if a company breaks the law that they lose subsidies. Like there's actually in there an incentive that's built in that says, uh, you know, as long as you don't get caught, or even if you do get caught, you're not going to lose these subsidies. And this is like if uh, if Amazon was to get OSHA fines and then to think, oh, they've got four hundred million dollars in subsidies is literally osha paying itself like well (laughs) and and you you see this dishonesty at every point along the chain like i I was reading a piece recently about the union busters that amazon hired who illegally failed to disclose the amount of money that they had been paid within i think it was within 30 days of of being hired yeah i I read that same piece and it was wild to read because they had a quote in that from the office within the government that is supposed to investigate these disclosures. Mm-hmm. And they asked them like, well, okay, if they violate it, what are you going to do? And they're like, well, we're going to talk to them and, and make sure that in the future they don't break the law. <laughs> it's, there's, there's literally no punishment whatsoever. God it's damn. wild. But yeah, like in the, in the case of these subsidies for Amazon, like they got $18 million in subsidies just to build the JFK eight warehouse. And we've reported on the numerous myriad and constant violations of us labor law that were done there during the ALU's, uh, you know, union campaign. And, and the, those subsidies came with a, this, this, this requirement that said, quote, a business entity must be in compliance with all worker protection and environmental laws and regulations. And obviously that was not followed. And so, you know, now there's this new push, which like to try and do something about this through, you know, the, the legal process. And so there's a bill that that is going to be introduced. There was this New York assemblyman, Ron Kim, who said, I plan to introduce new legislation to not just end, but also claw back all tax breaks and credits for any company under the Excelsior jobs program engaged in violation of worker and environmental protection laws. If we do not stop subsidizing Amazon's warehouses, New York state becomes complicit in subsidizing union busting practices with taxpayer money. And that, I mean, yeah, I it, I would just true. say New York State already is and always has been complicit in subsidizing union busting practices, but I appreciate the sentiment that that's bad and should be stopped. <laughs> right. Well, but, and then so you, like you have you have even further weird moves by the company like uh Amazon really strongly policing it's one of its subreddits <laughs> against the yeah. word union like we, we we saw the piece that went around where it was like uh the new proprietary amazon chat app or whatever it was supposed to be banned like a, a ridiculous list of words and now r slash amazon fc which has nearly 50k members banned all mention of unions moderators justified the move quote due to an influx of spam and outright malicious posts i'm sorry but that reads like i am a vice president at amazon and i am also (laughs) the subreddit moderator surprise surprise (laughs) yeah I mean, uh, I would think that if there was a problem, you could just ban anti-union uh, you know, sentiment. <laughs> like, if you're really gonna like like crack down on anything, like why don't you crack down on the people trying to oppress the working class? Well, and when they say, "Oh, this was because of a, an influx of outright malicious posts," I'm like, "You mean posts that were like we should have a union and Amazon is exploiting everyone? Is that what's so malicious?" Yeah, like 
but but yeah, there was a an Amazon worker who themselves was a is a member of this subreddit uh, who had talked to Motherboard about this and, and had had it one of their own pro union post censored who said it's extremely upsetting. We saw the same thing happen with the Verizon worker subreddits. Mm. Workers started organizing, and then a strong anti union campaign comes in. When you ban the discussion of unions at a place with no unions, you are anti union. That's and, right. Yeah, that's a hundred percent correct. And I mean. This is one of those things that I think is important to understand, like the function of so many of these internet platforms that we have and that they are not, you know, neutral platforms. <laughs> Cause like with any sort of communication system like this under capitalism, like if they're out there operating, you know, under the profit motive as pretty much all of these are because they get money from ads, like, and various other means, then Ultimately, it is in the interest of the people running those platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, to promote capitalist interests and to do this sort of union-busting bullshit. And it's it's just one of those systemic problems with that part of the ideological state apparatus. But You're, thankfully, you're telling me Elon Musk's Twitter isn't the perfect place to organize? <laughs> <laughs> Wild, right? But so thankfully... Uh, we're not restricted to our organizing to the internet. Uh, and so this weekend there was a really big rally held on Staten Island in support of the ALU as we go into this week where voting has begun at the LDJ five sorting facility, basically across the street from the JFK warehouse. Uh, and so like there was this big rally that brought, you know, union members, labor supporters, Amazon workers, uh, and people from all, all across the, the Northeast to the Staten Island facility to show out, to show support for the workers and, and, and for the union election. And it brought some pretty big names from the labor movement. Like it was good to see a, like a lot of material support from like Sarah Nelson, who's the president of the flight attendants union, the president of the American Postal Workers Union, Mark Diamondstein, and AFT president, Randy Weingarten, as well as a, and this I really like, there was a big delegation from Teamsters Local 804, which is, you know, the New York City local, uh, who brought their big inflatable capitalist pig, which they had, which I thought definitely added to the, the vibes there. Yeah. Also, well, and I, I, I love I like the that state. Yeah. You, you, did you want to do the statement from, from Sarah no, no, Nelson? Because... <laughs> I, I just like the idea of an inflatable capitalist pig because it's really funny. And also, as much as I love Scabby the Rat, he kind of freaks me out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing that I was really excited about is actually this statement from Sarah Nelson, the president of the flight attendants uh, union, who said, uh, Amazon workers are fighting for the things that we fought for, uh, that we fought for a hundred years ago because somebody came up with a phrase called labor peace. Let me tell you something. There is no fucking labor peace. And <laughs> God damn, I feel like Sarah is listening right now and shouts out to you. <laughs> that couldn't be more correct. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was very nice to see that there was, I mean, there's all sorts of really cool like videos and footage. I've been trying to post like segments from the discord because like, Folks from the ALU, like obviously Christian Smalls, but also like all sorts of members that we've talked about, as well as members who are organizing at like LDJ5, were up there giving their own speeches. And it was, it was just, you know, constant fire, great stuff, really inspiring to see so many different unions all coming together to show material support for this, you know, one of the most important labor struggles out there right now. Mm -hmm. So that was really great to see. And, and with that election now, which started, you know, uh, yesterday, cause we're recording on, on Tuesday, uh, it's, you know, 
really, really inspiring. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to a potential second unionized Amazon warehouse when they start counting the ballots on, on May 2nd. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we might even hold a little viewing party. I don't know if we can, because uh, we're not allowed to share the actual stream, but I, th- I think we might be able to share the link and we can watch together in the Discord. So maybe we'll do that when they actually count it. You, you do it... Uh, what was that thing they did after Mystery Science Theater 3000 where they just posted oh, the reaction? Riff tracks, where you just post the reaction and you assume everybody's watching the same piece of media. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that. Well, uh, I guess in the thoughts of uh, other content, one of the uh, stories that we're going to be going over in our rank and file episode, which I am pretty close, was pretty close to done. I promise Ooh. you, it will come out soon. Uh, we are going to go to Virginia teachers who are going to be kind of uh mirroring a uh, movement that will like i said will be covered in those episodes uh from the chicago teachers union and then one of the things that i noticed specifically was the name of the caucus that was within their union the rank and file educators uh caucus v core because the ctu's uh rank and file caucus was called core uh so i mean i do think yeah. that maybe they're maybe they're learning from each other and this rank and file movement has uh when uh, are they they voted to unionize uh with 99 percent of the educators on in on board yeah like because so this is a, a story where we've talked in the past about one of the weird things about organizing in the public sector is that workers are not generally covered by the nlra and so it's their you have this patchwork of labor law that varies state to state because federalism is stupid. And so in some states, you have a relatively similar election procedure to the NLRB procedure we see for private uh, companies that where workers are forming unions. But in some states, like we talked about with the, the Indiana grad students, it can be extremely difficult to form public unions. And that has been the case in Virginia for a very long time. And that's only changed very recently uh, because like from 1977 to 2020, the Virginia actually had a law a state law banning collective bargaining for public workers, asterisk, except cops, because cops aren't workers. <laughs> uh, so, like, but in 2020, that law was repealed, and but which allowed cities to individually decide whether they would allow public workers to collectively bargain or not. And so this is going to lead to this long patchwork fight that, that, that like city by city that's now got to be gone through. And so you have these teachers in Richmond who are kind of at like the tip of the spear of this fight where once the like legal channels were opened, like the, they launched a really stiff struggle over the last couple of years to actually get teachers in Richmond unionized. And, and as you said, Lena, like one of the leading groups within the uh, Virginia, I think it's the Virginia, yeah, Virginia, the Richmond Educators Association is their their actual union, is that that group, the VCOR, Virginia Caucus of Rank and File Educators, who have been pushing for a, you know, a democratically controlled union by the workers for these like last, I guess, probably year and a half or so since, since that law was repealed, allowing potentially the sort of bargaining because, um, like the, they were, they put first had to lobby a campaign to get the Richmond city council to vote, to allow 
the workers to collective bar collectively bargain because like the state law didn't automatically make collective bargaining legal. They first had to win that hurdle. And then they had to, to have their actual union election, which as you said, they won in a nearly unanimously, like uh, essentially a hundred percent. Yeah. I think that, uh, one of the things that you know really characterizes this is their statement on on what's going on here. They said we are committed to rebuilding the union from the bottom up, creating a space to train a network of education workers who are leaders in their unions, school, oh, their unions, schools, and communities. A labor union should be run directly and de- democratically by its membership and act independently of politicians, bureaucrats, and corporations. And I, I, that sentiment right there Hell is yeah. just like, mm, absolutely perfect <laughs> for, for what, uh, what you know, we consider uh, you know, great organizing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was really happy to see that in the statement. Uh, the distancing from politicians is something that seems to be gaining a lot of currency with uh, the modern union movement. And uh, I got to say, it's fucking awesome. The combination Mm -hmm. of being political and not tying yourself to politicians is that's chef's kiss right there. That is just, that's two great tastes that taste great together. (laughs) That's right. Well, well, I mean, the Democratic Party has been a parasite on the labor movement Mm -hmm. for like the last century, really. And, And getting away from that, is is a huge would be a huge step forward so uh yeah these signs that we've seen budding in a few of these areas of that sort of independence is is a great sign but uh, i think part of what we can see in virginia for why there was so much enthusiasm like why there they got to 99 percent here and why i think you know there there's a chance for some more militancy and success moving on to other cities although we'll you know we'll see is unfortunately the awful conditions faced by teachers in Virginia. Because, you know, we've talked about teacher struggles a bunch of times. Everybody knows teachers are paid dog shit in this country. Like, Mm -hmm. they're treated awfully, and it's a disgrace. But in a country that generally treats teachers badly, Virginia itself stands out. They In a ranking of teacher salaries, like, of all the states, Virginia came in dead last. 50th, which, you know, probably contributed to why pe- to people being like, oh, we are now not legally blocked from having a union. We need a fucking union. <laughs> yeah, let's get this and, shit moving. <laughs> yeah. So, and I mean, Virginia is a right to work state as well. So even though like now cities have the option to allow collective bargaining, there's always that potential difficulty where you can have it where right to work makes it easier for employers, politicians, outsiders to sabotage unions and stuff with all sorts of stupid divisive bullshit. But I mean, considering that we've already seen V clearly learn stuff from like the, the rank and file organizing at the CTU, I think where we've seen some public unions show resiliency after the Janus decision, which I mean, essentially opened up the possibility for right to work laws everywhere for, for, for public unions. I, I think that like right to work is less of a like hard stop for union organizing that I think some people have portrayed it as and, and, and the way you beat it as I think has been demonstrated is exactly what these, these workers have been talking about with their democratic, like grassroots sort of organizing that actually listens to the needs of the actual teachers and responds to them. Right. I mean, like right to work laws are anti-union laws and they should be gotten off the books. But um, I think that like you were saying, these rank and file movements show that is more of a nuisance than an actual hindrance. 
Right. Yeah. Like they do make it more difficult. They 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 are a pain. They are, are they're definitely a drain on union resources. But with an with a determined democratic like organizational process, you can beat them. And 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 so considering the strength of the the this caucus of rank and file organizers, I think that this example that they've shown by getting the teachers in Richmond organized is going to be really good and really useful for spreading that throughout the rest of the state. And so it'll be really interesting to watch and see if this expands, you know, beyond like a couple of the biggest cities. Well, and in the thought of teachers and uh, honestly, the relating to Chicago with like VCOR and what I was mentioning there, uh, we're actually going to be talking about grad student workers who uh, have actually just ended their strike in uh, in at the University of Illinois of Chicago, where 1,500 workers had voted 97% in favor of striking back on April 18th. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what their demands are and what they are dealing with on the ground. Yeah. So, like, we talked about the Indiana grad student workers last week where they've been on strike for recognition. So it's a little bit of a different situation here where the workers at the University of Illinois Chicago, which is confusingly different from the University of Chicago, um... They've been unionized since 2004 under a, uh, their union is called the Graduate Employees Organization or GEO. And so even though they've had their union for almost 20 years now, actually, um, they've had to strike a whole bunch of times over the last 18 years because like the University of Illinois Chicago seems to really not like bargaining in good faith with <laughs> its various unions because like, they're not just the union of the grad workers, but like the union of faculty, the union of like their, um, their cafeteria workers and janitorial staff, as well as the multiple strikes that this grad union has had to do. There have been all sorts of strikes at the union because it seems like the administration at the university of Illinois, Chicago does not particularly like actually paying workers what they deserve. Uh, so like, and it, like this specific contract, it's also not like, you, you know, that these workers are striking at the drop of a hat. These workers have been negotiating since their contract expired a year ago, but the university has refused to meet their core demands. And thus, you know, the 97% in favor of the strike vote when they <laughs> launched their strike last Monday, the 18th. We've been seeing yep. a lot of these really, really strong supports for strikes uh, all over the United States. It's almost like the conditions are all over the the poor conditions are all over the place. Absolutely. I mean, you have a quote here from Aaron O'Callaghan, who's a bargaining committee member and PhD student, who said, UIC remains bafflingly obstinate when it comes to not providing the basics of a labor contract, a living wage, protections against harassment, and no lockout language. So these people are fighting for like a ton of the same things that we saw in Indiana, like you said, except that the base salary of 20K in the city of Chicago is almost even more kind of disrespectful to the workers than the 18k we saw in indiana just because the cost of living in chicago is so astronomically high not to mention that these students are getting over ten thousand dollars less than grad students at nearby schools like the university of chicago and loyola plus they're seeing up to ten percent of their salary being taken away in the form of fees from the university 
Yeah, which basically brings it back down to that eighteen hundred uh, or eighteen thousand dollar mark uh, mm-hmm. in, in its own right. But then also like the the no no lockout language. I mean, that's that's wild that they have uh, you know a, a way that the the com- or the the college can just like lock you out because it's in the contract. You have to like what the fuck? Yeah, I mean it's wild. Like the the negotiation because the. The union has been posting negotiating updates as they've been going through this process. And they mentioned that early on in the negotiations, like maybe in the first offer from the university, they put out a proposed contract that would have barely any raise whatsoever for the workers, no reduction in fees, and would actually increase their health care costs. So, like basically, they put forward, hey, here's a concessionary contract. Please accept it. And- but Dan, but Dan, they probably don't have the money. Well, yeah, that's the thing I was going to say. Lest you think, well, you know, perhaps Illinois, the state, is just not funding universities and, you know, there's a big crisis of funding in public education. Perhaps that's the problem. And yet, no, like many, many of the stories that we've talked about with grad student workers, uh, I would say like Columbia comes to mind, the University of Illinois at, at Chicago their endowment actually hit a record last year, like many other colleges, uh, where they hit $3.8 billion. And as a result of that, the university president's salary went up to $850,000. So the idea that there's not enough money to raise wages for grad workers from 20K is just uh, the objectively The president untrue. makes just short of a million dollars a year, and they can't afford to give the students raises. What the fuck? Yeah, it's it's insane. And then on top of all of the economic issues, workers are also fighting for protections against discrimination and sexual misconduct, which are unfortunately extremely common on college campuses. You have a further quote here from Aaron O'Callaghan, who says, Geo has to be involved in making sure our members receive supportive measures in the workplace when they are harassed or discriminated against. Graduate workers have lost all faith that UIC will properly support survivors, and so GEO members must be allowed to protect ourselves. Absolutely. I mean, that's the uh, I mean, that's the thing uh, when looking at you know organizing strategies is the idea that like you have to like you can't always real you can't rely on the outside institutions. You have to build the power within your union to actually protect yourselves, and that's really it. Shows that the, these workers are uh, putting a, a really big attempt at at, at doing that. Yeah, yeah and, and-, and you shouldn't just rely on your fellow workers. You should also rely on your fellow community members because as these grad students have been holding rallies to publicize the strike and, and generate support, uh, unionized faculty have joined them on the picket lines and refused to act as scabs. And undergraduate students in their classes that they would normally be teaching have also joined them on the picket lines. So we're seeing a really wide base of support for these uh, graduate workers. Yeah, so it was definitely really good to see because we saw that the same thing in Indiana where there was a lot of support Mm -hmm. from not just, you know, the unity amongst the grad workers, but from the whole rest of the faculty and the undergrads. So that was really good to see. And so when I originally put the story together, I figured, oh, yeah, this is another grad student strike. But just last night, uh, Monday evening, so uh, that would be the 25th because today is the 26th. The union announced on Twitter that they'd reached a tentative agreement to end the strike with the university. And so this just happened. We don't have a ton of details. What they have put out there, there's some wins. There's some stuff that is maybe a bit less of a win. Uh, Specifically, what has been released as far as details are 
They've agreed on an increase in wages to $24,000 by the end of the contract, uh, including yeah. $2,000 in retroactive pay increase for last year. Um, as well, I mean, it's a it's a considerable percentage, but it's definitely not what they were fighting for. Yeah, and I, and that's the other thing because like I think the comparison is really important. Like, a even to twenty four thousand dollars. Hey, that is a, tw- a objectively it is a twenty percent increase from their current wages. Mm-hmm. That being said, their current wages are abysmally low, and that's not even you know getting them halfway to what similar workers are making at similar institutions nearby in what remains an incredibly expensive place to live. So and that's by the end of the contract too. Right. Um, there, I mean, there are some real wins in there. Uh, in, you know, instead of getting a rate, like increased healthcare costs, the, uh, new contract will actually make healthcare costs cheaper, especially for workers who have dependents. That was a big focus of this. They did secure language to include supportive measures for survivors of sexual misconduct, which is a very important issue. So that's a real win. And they did prevent, I believe, uh, lockout language from being included in there. So like, I don't look, we, you know, it's, this is one of those things where, uh, we, we don't want to be the world socialist website coming out here saying every time that a strike ends without a worker occupation is a failure. Uh, but like, I, I mean, look, the, the, the sexual misconduct language, the support for that real win, the mm-hmm. like preventing cuts to the healthcare, obviously we'd prefer, you know, make the healthcare free, but we understand that, you know, you take the wins in that place when you can get it. It just, right. I don't know. It just feels like, 24k you've especially with the current level of inflation you have moved from one sub poverty wage to still a sub poverty wage and right. yeah. and well yeah, i don't and know and you you pointed out something to us earlier when we were talking about this that uh as soon as the tentative agreement came in the uh they announced the end of the strike yeah that's that's my biggest honestly my my most explicit problem with this deal because like again it's it we only just saw this we don't have the full details of the contract and as we're going to get into it hasn't even been ratified so i don't want to go too heavy on criticizing the specifics of the contract but this aspect of it as you mentioned lena like because we've seen this in a couple of recent strikes especially in education where the bargaining committee reaches a tentative agreement and immediately oh time to end the strike we got the tentative agreement it's over we did it Mm -hmm. everybody and it's like well wait the bargaining committee has an agreement, but you haven't brought it to the membership yet. And so announcing an end of the strike before the ratification vote is an inherently anti-democratic move. I I can understand the negotiating committee feeling pressured into it, especially, you know, you've been going through all this tense negotiating. You get to a deal where on a lot of the issues, you think it's pretty good. You think most of the people are going to accept it. Maybe the university comes in and says, Hey, this is our, our best uh, this is the the best thing you're going to get right now. Take it or leave it. And if you leave it, we're going to go. You're going to get a shittier deal later. But like, we can't. If we are committed to workers' democracy, we can't have the bargaining committee say the seven or eight of us like this deal. Therefore, the whole strike's over before the whole rest of the you know group has had a chance to vote on it. It's that is inherently undemocratic. And I just cannot get behind that specific part of the move. Right. Yeah. Well, and uh, to to move to our, you know, weekly reoccurring segment, 
on Starbucks, which I know everybody like, I and I don't mean this sarcastically. That we're basically on the edge of our seats when in regards to this because <laughs> it's one of the most uh, exciting things that uh, we get across our 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 news desk every single week with the many different wins. But we're going to actually start as we have been with some of the rougher things that have been going on, uh, specifically with. Uh, Starbucks itself filing two ULP charges against Starbucks Workers United, claiming that they broke labor law in uh, Denver and Phoenix, where organizers physically blocked entrances and exits to stores, making threats and physically intimidating baristas who did not support the union drive, to which I believe we say, uh, who fucking cares? (laughs) Yeah. Oh no, my staff bullied themselves. It, it's kind of a nonsensical uh, ULP, especially when the charges seem to indicate that they were mostly just doing normal union drive activities. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the the whole thing is ridiculous. Like uh, on its face, it's from Starbucks. I don't believe them. I don't like right. you know trust anything they say on this. They have lied consistently throughout this process, like all companies do. But that being said, essentially what they've described is we have to uh, you know we have to stop this horrible spate of workers doing pickets. Because pick like, <laughs> yeah, basically what they're describing is the the workers did a picket. Which is supposed we're now supposed to feel bad for the company and talk about how what a horrible violation of labor law that is. Like it, it's a ludicrous assertion. And the quote here that we have too is also pretty stupid from like the from the Starbucks representative for North America, Roseanne Williams, who said, We're doing this to protect the physical safety and emotional well-being of our partners and to make it very clear that the behavior we're seeing from some union organizers is not acceptable and we won't tolerate it. Oh you have to <laughs> give me a fucking break. You have to tolerate it. You don't get a choice. It's not up to you. That's the thing. This whole process isn't fucking up to you. What? Yeah. Well, and the whole thing, like, the, I will say, they have stayed remarkably on message with this statement with their mm-hmm. attempts to third party the union because it's framed as if an outside force, the union, as if it's like this little UFO that's hovering over the shop, has like started assaulting the the poor Starbucks partners when the people that they're really filing the charge against the people who were doing a picket are also Starbucks workers. And like, this is one of those things that is so frustrating about this, though, the, what is functionally a psyop of the, the using the term partners instead of employees where they're trying to make it seem like, oh, the company cares about them, but you're basically, they're basically saying we have to protect our partners from our partners. Right. (laughs) Right. And then the union uh, responded to these charges from the company saying, these charges are a continuation of Starbucks war against its own partners. It takes a lot of gall for a company that's launched one of the most aggressive and intense anti-union campaigns in modern history to file these charges. Starbucks is getting desperate as it loses this war in battle after battle because we, the Starbucks partners, continue to organize and fight for a real voice within the company. And then the union notes that so far they've filed over 80 ULP charges against Starbucks for its violations. So, yeah. you know, so these 80 two ULPs versus two. don't mean shit. Right? Yeah, fuck them. <laughs> well, and yeah, the same- and this also, like, this all came out, and like, and then two days later, after they filed these charges, 
the NLRB itself, not the union, issued another complaint against Starbucks because of a store manager in Miami where workers are trying to unionize. And the complaint says that the manager threatened employees with discharge and other reprisals if they engaged in activities on behalf of the union. Sounds Mm -hmm. very illegal. (laughs) Yeah, I'm... I mean, this is one of those things that has just always been, I, I, to me, is very wild about the Starbucks like union-busting drive is that the U.S. labor law is, makes it so easy to fire people, to harass workers, to enforce whatever your dictatorial you know, rules are in your workplace. You just have very specific things you aren't allowed to do. You can do anything else, just not these few specific things. You can go in and tell a worker, you know, I'm, we're just not satisfied with the performance, and if it doesn't improve, we're going to have to let people go. Th- that is a thing you can say, like because it is like because of at-will employment and all the other bullshit, but they can't help themselves. They can't, they're like, the, the unionization drive has made like the management at Starbucks so apoplectic, they just can't stop breaking U.S. labor law. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, maybe uh, if they fucking promoted from within the company instead of hiring a bunch of fresh out of business school dipshits to run their stores, but I digress. Uh. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, so on the same day, also on April 22nd, we did get a filing from the NLRB that is is a is interesting because it's a change in the way the board has been going after Starbucks mm-hmm. and its anti-union campaign. Because, like, like this complaint they just filed against that manager, as well as a lot of the other complaints they filed, and as we've talked about in the past, a lot of these, when they legally fire somebody or all the other violations they do, those cases can take months or even years to resolve. And by that time, like there's usually no the 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 issues passed and like there really isn't a real remedy to solve the problem. And so but now in this most recent complaint, the board has filed what are called section 10J injunctions against Starbucks and calling for the immediate rehiring of three recently fired worker organizers at a store in Arizona. Like and and so this is a section section 10J of the NLRA that is one of the only like parts of US labor law that has like short term enforcement mechanisms mm-hmm. because it allows the NLRB to seek injunctions, quote, to stop unfair labor practices where, due to the passage of time, the normal board processes are likely to be inadequate to effectively remedy the alleged violations. This should be literally like this. This should be like filing these like they're the main piece of paper that they're filing because every single thing the NLRB does is slow as fuck. Yeah, I mean, we've seen multiple cases where workers have had to wait anywhere from six months to over a year to see any meaningful actions from the NLRB. Yeah, sometimes longer. Yeah, so, like, honestly, like, this should be the default, like you're saying, because, like, the idea that, you know, unfair labor practices where, due to the passage of time, the normal board processes are likely to be inadequate, that's every unfair labor practice charge be- because <laughs> yeah. the the normal board processes do not work so <laughs> like functionally these should be has should have been filed in basically every one of these retaliatory firings but so this one specifically is for three workers who basically form the nucleus of the organizing committee at this uh, store in Arizona including uh, Layla Dalton who we have talked about in the past on the show uh, when she was fired 
And so if the court approves the injunction, and this has got to be reviewed in, in because of the way that this injunction is set up, it's got to be reviewed shortly. I believe by May 6th is when Starbucks has to respond. I think. I'm not sure. Don't quote me on that. But um, regardless, it's within the next couple of weeks. So rather than taking months and months and months or two years, by, by which point, you know, the, the union drive would be well over. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. this could see actual short-term results in forcing the company to rehire these workers. And, you know, that would be, like, potentially one way of at least slightly blunting the scorched earth campaign that Starbucks is waging against its workers right now. Yeah, I think the, one of the limitations on this that, uh, you know, a longer term, uh, you know, ULP wouldn't would have compared to this is that there it doesn't seem to be any like back pay tied uh, tied to it so right i i don't know but maybe they'll be able to negotiate that within the union but uh the idea uh, speaking of negotiating things within the union uh there is actually well i guess it's this is a less of a negotiation and more of a direct action uh on the 17th in uh, one of the newly unionized stores in Ithaca, they went out on strike and, because uh, they a grease trap overflowed. And a uh, content warning for this, it's really, really fucking gross. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you're squeamish and don't want to hear this sort of thing, skip 30 seconds into the future. But there was a mixture of waste water, uh, fats, oils, maggots, both alive and dead, that had spilled all over the floor and apparently uh the photos are absolutely just grotesque yeah if you look them up on twitter or you see them in an article it's even worse than the description uh sounds like and these workers had repeatedly asked their management to close the store and fix the issue and sanitize the store and the manager had completely refused so these workers got together and unanimously decided and and from what i read on twitter it seemed like uh, they they were just like, hey, look, we have the union. We should just put a sign in the window and all walk out right now. So they did, and they walked out on strike. And um, the other recently unionized stores in Ithaca, the workers from those stores came out to show their solidarity on the picket line. Yeah, which is which is fucking great. And I mean, like, because to emphasize on this, like, it, this obviously, like, this protest is very important, like, because it's good to see the, you know, workers actually demonstrating the power of their organization and their solidarity, especially like in the wake of their union election. But like, even regard, like, even if this Starbucks workers United movement had never happened, they never had a a union vote. I think it's important to emphasize to workers that like, this is a clear unsafe working condition. Like the pictures of this are disgusting. Like it looks like Mm -hmm. a giant vomited all over the floor. Like the, and this is, This would be an unsafe work condition anywhere, but in a store that is supposed to be serving food, making drinks, and you're supposed to be doing that safely to people in an environment where you have, again, content warning, uh, if you're squeamish, skip uh, 15 seconds into the future. Literally, like, maggots on the floor from this overflowing grease trap? Like, absolutely impossible. It is a clear unsafe work condition. And so, like, even if these workers had not had a union vote, like... Obviously, U.S. labor law is weak as shit, but one of the few protections that you do have is that if you are in a, if you like a work, your boss is telling you, you have to work in unsafe conditions, you have the legally protected right to refuse to do that. Of course, they could still retaliate against you, but legally you do have some recourse in that case, even if you don't have a union. And so like these sorts of strikes are really important, like to, because 
if we don't, as you know, if workers don't push back on that stuff, the bosses are going to force workers into unsafe conditions all the time because it makes them more money to do that. So like, yeah. it's really important that workers like push back on that sort of shit and refuse to work in conditions like this. And so like, it's really good to see these, these workers in Ithaca stand up to that. Well, it's Absolutely. like a, a great example of how the union isn't only good for the workers themselves, but good for the people who are, you know, helped by the business or, or served by the business. Uh, similar to when nurses go out on strike and are in, to get better conditions for the patients in that they're caring for. In this case, the, it's slightly different in that they're doing like food safety, but like it's still like the union protects everyone, I guess, except for the boss, which is totally fine. Yeah, that's um, I mean that's that's part of the idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so like there was a quote from the shift supervisor, Benjamin South, who was at the store that day, who told the local news, even though it might be scary to step out and do something like that, there is power in numbers. Seeing that we did not get fired over it and that we could not get punished for it is probably a good thing for other workers. And they're absolutely right. Like it's, it, I think it's, it's really good that they're highlighting that point and, and demonstrating the worker power because we don't have to put up with being forced to work in the in a condition with an overflowing grease trap like that without taking the time to to, to shut down, clean it, and and make the store safe to work in. And so, really good example by these workers in Ithaca. Yeah, I'm talking about worker power. We're going to go over the many victories that have happened since we last recorded. Uh, one of them being in a roast in the second roastery uh, that out of three that Starbucks has, as well as crossed out number five, seven more <laughs> more stores. Because uh, you know when we begin recording or we're going to record on a day we look at the local news to make sure that everything's up to date. And we had to get rid of the number five of victories because there were an additional two that happened today. That's right. Yeah. Including this flagship roastery, which uh, voted 38 to 27, not exactly a landslide, but not really a nail biter either to unionize with uh, Workers United, making them the second of the three Starbucks roasteries in the U.S. to unionize. And uh, the reason that the one in Chicago probably hasn't unionized yet is because it only opened in February. So <laughs> we'll keep an eye on that one. <laughs> yeah. So like, I mean, the, these are a really big deal. Like we, we talked about the New York City roastery when they unionized on the same day as, as the ALU actually. And that was a huge win um, because these stores, these roasteries basically act as like hubs for mm -hmm. the city's like network of, of various Starbucks locations. Like the roastery here in, that, that we're talking about in Seattle um, has about a hundred employees, you know, which is about you know, five times the average Starbucks store. And it like these places I've seen described in various articles as like if Willy Wonka ran a coffee bar or like a I've seen them described by I think by Howard Schultz as like a shrine to coffee making. Yeah, a, a shrine to loser. Gen X hyper modern design choices and uh, <laughs> chairs without arm rests. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and this one you know is only two and a half miles from starbucks corporate hq like i know they mentioned in the several of the articles on this unionization drive that workers from like corporate would come into this store all the time and so now uh this one is union and and like the workers emphasized in when they were discussing you know why they wanted to unionize 
that they're fighting for, you know, a safer, fairer, more inclusive, more transparent, and more welcoming workplace, and pointed out that because of how much bigger these roasteries are, and they have, they're way more involved workplaces, like, for instance, like, the Seattle one has a whole pizzeria in it, which is, you know, not something you find <laughs> at a, a normal Starbucks, and so, like, part of what they're looking for in their contract is to get you know, that recognized as part of their work definition and their compensation mm-hmm. is like the broad job description that so many of these workers have to have to perform. Absolutely. I mean, most Starbucks are are not contending with the fact that some of their baristas are actually pizza chefs. So, I mean, if these flagship stores can unionize, uh, the smaller stores absolutely can too. And you have a statement here from one of the worker organizers, Brennan Collins, who said, this vote signals something that the roastery organizers always knew to be true, that the bonds we share between workers are our greatest strength. We can resist and thrive even among a storm of disinformation and fear mongering perpetrated against our best interests yeah which is so true i mean it's very clear that this union busting campaign is not in the workers interest oh my gosh i mean how many times do we have to say it but at least you know (laughs) we got a bunch of people out there uh you know beating the drum with us Mm -hmm. Um, yeah so in addition to the roastery which was a huge win uh we've now had seven more stores since last week's episode that have also unionized with Starbucks Workers United. And it seemed like every day since I started writing the notes, I kept having to come in up. Nope. More stores, more stores, more stores. It's (laughs) it's beginning pretty hard to keep up, which is kind of like, you know, not exactly a bad thing. Uh, But so we're going to run down these real quick to, to give you an update on where workers have been winning these elections. So starting last Friday on the 22nd, Two more stores won their elections. Uh, We started with the Rock Creek Parkway store in Louisville, Colorado, which is a suburb of Denver. And they became the first unionized store in Colorado with a vote of 12 to 2. And then following that, there was a store in Falls Church, Virginia, which is an incredibly wealthy suburb of D.C. And like the uh, the headquarters of a whole bunch of defense contractors is there. So a lot of really a lot of money in in Falls Church which mm-hmm. apparently results in a very large Starbucks and now a very large unionized Starbucks <laughs> because on Friday the this store voted 30 to 2 to become the sixth unionized Starbucks in Virginia. Yeah, for a store that's definitely the largest vote that we've seen so far. Uh, 32 voting members, uh, that's that's a huge store. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So love to see those overwhelming wins and then on Saturday which this was a learning experience, did not know the NLRB did union elections on Saturday, but hey, that's cool. Glad that they're, you know, uh, working on that to make sure that the unions can get their recognition as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so on another store in Virginia, this one in Leesburg, which is like an outer suburb of of, of D.C., voted 23 to 1 for union recognition with Starbucks. That Ithaca manager coming in again. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's like... It's that 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 one weird like nurse who tried to do the decertification vote at St. Vincent's, just yeah. just going around and, <laughs> yeah. and putting on different Groucho Marx glass disguises to vote in these unions. <laughs> um, then on Monday, so this would be the twenty fifth. Um, we had two more stores. First, Hopewell, New Jersey, which became the first unionized store in that state, voted unanimously 15 to nothing to unionize. We oh, love these right. unanimous wins. Love to see it. And on the same day, right after it, not to be left out, Baltimore had a store vote to unionize, becoming the first union Starbucks in Maryland, also unanimous 14 to nothing. 
Hell yeah. yeah. Fucking awesome. Awesome. And then, like, this morning, uh, coming in under the wire, right before we uh, do the show, uh, the NLRB was kind enough to give us a couple more <laughs> uh, counts of victories that happened. One being in Cary, Illinois, where they won their election 17-4, to followed shortly after by a store in, in Peoria, uh, where the union won 9-2. to Leading the total, well, let's drum roll, please, 33 to 2 in victories over losses at Starbucks by Starbucks Workers United. Hell yeah. And if you want a really good tool to visualize all of these uh, Starbucks Union wins, you can check out the uh, Starbucks Union tracker that we posted to our Facebook page that was so kindly made for us by a listener of the show and uh, awesome Twitter account at Hollow Solace. Yeah, it's fuck. I I love when I see like people in our community out there doing a, additional education work and and engaging with people or uh doing efforts within their own union. It's it's so inspiring and and really, you know, honestly, and I mean that it's inspiring to us too, you know, doing this show and mm-hmm. seeing people out there putting in uh work as well but i i do want to kind of jump right into the meme review because the first meme is uh is actually uh there's a correction that we preemptively made by announcing how many victories there's been uh but uh this first meme and this, we can go into the meme review right yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. let's do yeah. it yeah all right cool 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 uh this is a meme uh with a title worst records of all time which is loaded with sports teams, and then one other. Uh, the the Detroit Lions in 2008 were zero and 16. New York Mets in uh, 1962 were 40 and 120. Washington Capitals in 1975 were 867 and five. Uh, uh, Charlotte Bobcats in 2012, seven to 59, seven of 59, or seven versus 59 losses. Uh, Tampa Bay Mutiny in 2001, uh, four 21 and two, and then Howard Schultz, you know the the guy, fucking shitbag Howard Schultz uh, against Starbucks Workers United, two to 26. Although we're updating that today, two to 33. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And Although, so I mean, so like Howard's come back. He's doing all this stuff. He's firing people, but just it's not showing up in the win column. Howard, like you gotta, gotta do better if you want to keep that that coaching job. I mean, CEO, <laughs> CEO, yeah. Uh, hey, who knows? You know, he eventually might get a promising career with the Detroit Lions. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah, yeah. And, and then our second meme is a uh, hilarious uh, spin on micro and macro dosing. It says, y'all still on microplastics, and it has a spoon full of tiny bits of plastic. And then it has a cheems in a suit with a Tonka truck and some Lego, and it says, while I'm consuming macroplastics, semicolon, up your grind, 100. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't no, notice I- the semicolon before. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, the, the, another detail is that surrounding this Cheems in a business suit is uh, like some fucking Tonka truck, some to- some children's 
plastic toys, uh, Legos. <laughs> it's like that's right. Uh, you're really up in your your grind set by uh, by you know going on the the larger c- consuming of plastics or just downing Legos, fucking housing them, just eating a whole <laughs> Fiji bottle like rise and grind. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that that like there was always those um, those weird like Guinness Book of World Records where it's like somebody like I ate a Cessna. Because, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because they like put it in an industrial shredder or something. <laughs> but yeah, so this next one, this is a format that people have, have probably seen before. It's it's the crow at like an, an open mic night doing comedy, and so you've got the first panel. The crow is sitting there on the stool and and just saying into the microphone, "Vote!" And then you've got the heckler in the audience. Address material conditions. And then you've got the crow sweating, like quickly shuffling through their, their joke cards. But every single one of them is just stamped vote, 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 vote. And, and this is a diagram of every Democrat. Yeah. That's right. The only thing I don't like about this is the characterization of Corvids as not smart because they fucking rock <laughs> and uh, much smarter than any Democrat could ever hope to be. Well, I mean, to be fair, uh, having all your index cards say vote is still better than what some Democrats do. I remember when Joe Biden was running for president, he went to a, an area with a large Latino population and he pulled out his phone and played Despacito <laughs> into the microphone. So oh, yeah. the bar is... That's where I the can't bar believe is. that. That fucking I forgot about that. That's hilarious. I, I will never forget that moment in American history. <laughs> that shit was so funny. Really um, fucking terrible. When you just Alexa play Despacito like <laughs> uh, your presidential campaign, <laughs> and he won anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the the next one that we've got here is a is a unity meme. Here we've got this this little like yelling black cat that's 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 trying to pull two people together by their sweaters you got one of the people's labeled servers the other one labeled cooks and the cat is the iww hell yeah that's right love a good maru style black cat iww cat uh bringing people together especially cooks and servers which why why is there a separation there yeah, why are you fighting? <laughs> like, even more than other, like, senseless rifts in the working class, this one has always particularly perplexed me. <laughs> like, you work in the same building. Be nice. Yeah. <laughs> like Front of house, back of house, unity against the management. Yeah, yeah. That's right. You, you all work downstairs, right? It should be downstairs versus upstairs. <laughs> or wherever your boss's office is. It's sometimes it's a fucking mop closet. Uh, <laughs> yeah, do, do do not give in to false divisions created by the management. <laughs> That's right. No war but the yeah. class war. <laughs> and in right. that spirit, we have a Simpsons meme. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, this is, a, I guess, a, a, a one from an earlier episode. Because, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, you can tell by the animation style. But uh, the, there's a guy talking to Bart. They're fishing. And uh, the guy goes, I must say that in my day, we didn't promote communism out in the open. And then Bart says, well, this is my day. And we do, sir. That's <laughs> fucking right. We do promote communism out in the open, folks. That's right. That's right. Ne- <laughs> never, ever be ashamed to show your support for the worker struggle. 
That is absolutely right. And if you'd like to support uh, our show here, you can support us at patreon.com slash workstoppage. Perfect segue. Fucking nailed it. That's That's right. right. Uh, Yeah, you can drop us $5 a month and get access to our evergreen overtime episodes where we explain things like the decline of American unionism. We also do a little series called Shop Floor Discussions where we go a little bit deeper into a topic that we might not have time for on the show. Uh, If you can't afford to become a patron, uh, hit us up inside of the Discord server, which there is a link in the description of this episode, and you can, you know, just message one of us. We'd be happy to hook you up. Uh, Leave some reviews, places, uh, like in the dirt, like to get a big stick and carve it into your front lawn. That's a great Mm -hmm. place for it. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, make sure to uh, follow John on Twitter at Facebook Villain. Follow the podcast at Work Stoppage Pod. I technically have a Twitter at Solidarity B. I don't really use it that much. But uh, also, <laughs> uh, listen to Beep Beep Lettuce and Red Game Table. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest. And solidarity forever. Solidarity out there. Solidarity, everybody. Solidarity, everybody.